you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to the epistle of 1 Peter and to the third chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a regular series of sermons uh, in the book of 1 Peter. We come this morning in the third chapter to consider uh, Peter's instructions to husbands recorded in verse 7. Last week, we saw Peter's instructions to wives in verses 1 through 6 this morning, We'll consider his instructions to husbands in verse 7. But I want to read in context, so let's read together 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then the verse we'll be considering this morning. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I highlighted last week that we find ourselves in these verses in the middle of a a section in the book of 1 Peter that was begun in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So if you look over, maybe just one page over, I want you to see those verses again. Peter is introducing in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, a new section of his book. There he says, "'Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul.'" Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's attention, his focus, shifts in verse 12 to consider the public conduct of the people of God, that is, their behavior before the world. And immediately he looks at Christians in varying relationships in the world and explains what good conduct would look like in this or that situation. So immediately in verse 13, he goes to the issue of the Christian's relationship to the government. He says that we Christians are to honor the emperor, and we're to honor those governors that are sent by him. We're to have a prevailing respect for the governing authorities that God has placed over us. That says something as to the good conduct that Christians are to have in their relationship with the government. And then next, he considers in chapter 2, verse 18, Uh, He addresses slaves in particular. In those days, many in those churches would have been uh, servants or slaves in various capacities, and he addresses that particular group and tells uh, those slaves what good conduct would look like in their relationship to their masters, not just those who are kind and gentle, but even those who are unjust. What would it look like to live in a way that pleases God in relationship to those masters? And then last week, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and considered 
Peter's instructions for wives and the sort of conduct they ought to show forth in their relationship to their husbands, many of whom did not obey the word. That is the phrase that Peter uses. I told you last week, I think we're to understand from that that those who do not obey the word are those who literally are not Christians. They don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the truth. They don't know the Lord. But it would also have relevance to Christian husbands who maybe in particular areas are not what they ought to be. But Peter gives instructions to these wives. He says, you have an assignment for how to live in a way that's pleasing to God, in a way that invites His approval in what would have been an extremely difficult relationship. But to be a wife living in relationship with a husband who's living in disobedience to the Word. Well, now we come in verse 7 to Peter's instructions to husbands. And he says, he begins with the word likewise in verse 7. Husbands, you too husbands, you need to think about your conduct, your conduct also, like Christians living under the emperor and the governors, or slaves in relation to their masters, or wives in relation to their husbands. You too, husbands, need to give thought and attention to your conduct. It must be honorable. It must be pleasing to God. It must show forth something of the grace of God at work in you. Let's read again 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The sentence structure of verse 7 in the uh, original language and in English, I don't find yields itself very easily to a helpful outline. I, I found it very difficult to know how to break down this text into particular parts, but I found an outline began to emerge when I asked this question of verse 7. The question we want to ask this morning that will frame our thoughts and our exposition of verse 7 is this question, what is required of Christian husbands in this passage? What is required of Christian husbands in this passage? And I see four things. I will spend more time, most of our time even, on the first two points and then much less time on the last two. And let me just say here, uh, before we dive into this exposition of verse 7, there is something here uh, for every man here, whether you're married or not, whether you're young or old, there is something here uh, for every woman that is here. Sisters, don't check out. If you're married, I want to encourage you to listen in and help your husbands accomplish the vision uh, for godly manhood and godly husbanding that is held forth in this passage. Uh, but even if you're not married, there are lessons that uh, we can all learn here in ways uh, we can grow by our consideration of this verse. Uh, so, what is required of Christian husbands in this passage? First of all, what is required is that they live with their wives according to knowledge. That they live with their wives according to knowledge. You see that in the very first couple of phrases in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, the ESV has it, live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter says first, we're to live with our wives. This is actually the only usage of this Greek word translated to live. It's the only usage of this word in the whole New Testament. Uh, we should not think by that, that word, live, that all Peter has in mind is just sort of existing under the same roof, or that this is just kind of cohabitation. We live alongside one another. We have parallel lives. The word actually connotes more than that. It's, it's to dwell with. One acceptable translation of the word is to uh, live or to share knowledge with or of another person. So you're to dwell with your wives, husbands. This rules out the idea that we can merely cohabitate and exist alongside 
our wives in some sort of kind of parallel sort of living of our lives. It requires an intimacy and communion, a dwelling with our wives. And of course, the next clause in verse 7 pushes us deeper into this kind of understanding of the marriage relationship. Live with your wives, the ESV has it, in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. I really, really don't like that translation. Uh, First of all, it does not translate the Greek words accurately. More than that, I don't think it conveys the idea that is meant to be conveyed by the Greek words. If you're reading the NIV, it's even worse. Uh, The NIV says, be considerate as you live with your wives. That's just not what the Greek says. Bless God, 99.9% of what's in most of our New Testaments in English is perfectly reliable. I just don't think this is a great translation, either to be considerate as you live with your wives or to live with them in an understanding way. The Greek literally reads, live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to knowledge. Now, before I say anything else, can you surmise uh, how there's more to the idea of living with your wife according to knowledge than simply being considerate of her? or being understanding toward her. Uh, Husbands, you can be considerate toward a complete stranger, can't you? You can even probably have some sort of understanding disposition toward strangers that you meet, but you can't live with a stranger according to knowledge. I think the language of being considerate or being understanding is just far weaker and diminishes the magnitude of what's being required here. Husbands, we're called to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. Now, one might ask, knowledge of whom or what? I understand it, like most commentators, to be referring to knowledge of their wives. Now, I think Peter is calling husbands to acquire knowledge of his wife uh, in two particular ways, two ways in which a husband is to have knowledge of his wife that I think is at the root of the idea here. First of all, brothers, you must know and understand what it means that your wife is a woman and not a man. You must understand what it means that your wife is a woman and not a man. There are certain things that are true of your wife simply by virtue of the fact that she is a woman and not a man. She's not a guy, brothers, and you shouldn't treat her like she's a guy. There's a difference between men and women. She has two X chromosomes. Your buddies have uh, XY chromosomes. There's a difference. You need to know that she is a woman, and you need to be aware of what that means and what implications that has for how you relate to her. Now, in my experience, uh, there are just some husbands who struggle with this. Um, It's like the dollar has gone into the machine, but the Coke hasn't dropped yet. Uh, There are some husbands uh, who act as though, who talk as though, their marriage is to be completely egalitarian in every way. They think it's a 50-50 marriage, We should have exactly the same expectations of one another. If she expects something of me, I should be able to have that same expectation of her. And she can't expect something from me if I don't expect it from her. If she says she has some need, but I don't have the same need, I don't need to satisfy that need in her. It's a 50-50 marriage. Our marriage is egalitarian. Everything is fair and even. Brothers, that's just so wrong. Uh, That is to ignore the fundamental difference that exists between men and women. Your marriage is not egalitarian. Uh, There should be all kinds of inequities 
and asymmetries going both ways uh, in the marriage relationship because men and women are different. They have different needs and expectations. They respond differently. And brothers, you need to be prepared to accommodate your behavior, your words, your very life so that you can be effective at loving her as a woman just the way God made her and wired her. As a woman, she's different from you, and this should inform the way you treat her. I think this is part of what it means to dwell with her according to knowledge. I'll just say as an aside, wives, you're to do the same thing. Uh, You should dwell with your husbands according to knowledge, and you should appreciate and understand all the ways he's different from you, and that should inform your behavior toward him. But Peter's addressing husbands here, so I'll stick with the guys. So husbands, the fact that your wife is a woman should inform your behavior toward her. That's part of what dwelling with your wife according to knowledge means. You must acquire knowledge of what it means that she is a woman and thus different from you. But secondly, and there's a second way, husbands must know their wives. But I think this might be more important. Yes, to dwell with your wife according to knowledge means you must understand that she is a woman and thus different from you. But more importantly, you need to know not just that your wife is a woman, but that she is a particular woman, unique in her own way. Part of what it means to dwell with your wife according to knowledge is that you know her. Brothers, you need to develop deep, intimate, experiential knowledge of your wife. Who has God made her to be? Not just as a woman, but as a particular woman with particular strengths and particular weaknesses, with particular burdens and particular gifts and particular vulnerabilities. Brothers, you need to know all the ways that make her different from you as a woman and all the ways that make her different from other women. Uh, You are not married to another woman. You're married to your wife, and part of dwelling with her according to knowledge is to understand how God has made her uniquely, how God has put her together. You're to dwell with her according to knowledge of her. So, brothers, what are your wife's peculiar strengths and weaknesses? Where is she particularly vulnerable and most easily tempted? What are her foremost gifts and graces? What causes her to thrive and to flourish and to prosper? What discourages her and causes her to wilt? What makes her anxious? What does she look forward to? What are her hopes and dreams and ambitions? What most encourages her? The answers to these questions, frankly, will be different uh, for different women. And bless God, brothers, you don't have to know the answers to these questions for every woman. Uh, But you have to know the answers to these questions for your wife. And just a clue, uh, they're going to be different from the answers your mother would give. Uh, She is unique and she is different from other women. Part of dwelling with your wife, according to knowledge, is to know her in particular. So that's the first point. What is required of Christian husbands in this passage? Uh, It is required that they live with their wives according to knowledge. Knowledge that she is a woman, knowledge that she is a particular woman. Secondly, what is required of Christian husbands in this passage? Secondly, that they show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel that they show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. You see that in verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, that phrase, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, let's take it backwards. Okay, let's talk about weaker vessel. 
before we talk about the kind of honor that's required here, because, because the honor that's required is characterized and shaped by this knowledge of the woman as the weaker vessel. He's to honor his wife as the weaker vessel. So we've got to understand weaker vessel in order to understand the character and nature of this honor that Peter is calling these husbands to. First of all, observe very simply that both men and women are said to be vessels. Uh, both men and women are said to be vessels, and Peter is simply saying the woman of the two vessels is the weaker vessel, uh, precisely the way in which she is weaker. I'll say more about it in a minute. Second observation, uh, Peter actually switches words here when he refers to the woman. You can see this in English. You can see this in the original Greek. He goes from using the word wives, which he introduced in verse 1, wives be subject to your own husbands, to now referring to them with the more general word uh, women, showing honor to the woman, not to the wife. He's changed words there. I don't think there's a lot to see here, and I don't want to read uh, a mountain into something rather small, but I think we can appreciate that what Peter is about to say about women is true of all women generally. So he's not just telling us something that's true of our wives, he's identifying something that is distinctly feminine and generally true of all women. It's true of married women, it's true of unmarried women. Let me just say as an aside, uh, it's becoming increasingly important in our particular culture here in the West to understand issues related to gender and, and the genders, male and female, and what the differences are between men and women. There are differences. The Bible conveys that, even though that is being denied in many ways in our day and age. It's very important that we allow our thinking about the genders to be regulated by Bible texts, that we not say more than the Bible says or less than the Bible says. And so I would just encourage you, you know, the question is sometimes asked, if we're trying to understand the difference between men and women. You might think of it this way, if your son came to you and said, you know, mommy, daddy, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? Or your daughter came to you and said, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? You should have a good answer to that question. But I just want to say you should not imagine as though the Bible supplies us with 12 or 15 distinguishing traits between men and women. In the vast majority of ways, men and women are similar. The Bible actually only identifies a few things that are distinguishing traits between the genders. I say that, first of all, uh, so that we not overstate the difference between men and women. I say that, secondly, though, so that we would zero in and dial in on precisely what the differences are, and so that we could appreciate in our text this morning, we have one of the clearest differences the Bible identifies between men and women. Peter is making a statement that is generally true across the board of men and women, that the woman is the weaker vessel. So he says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean with those qualifications to refer to the woman as the weaker vessel? Everyone's on edge now, right? What's he going to say? I have no agenda or axe to grind. I'm a Bible interpreter. That's my calling. Frankly, that's what I'm paid to do. And so, you just have to appreciate the, the, the task is to understand what God has said and communicated through the Holy Spirit, through his servant, his servant Peter, in this passage. What the wider culture thinks about this issue, or frankly, even what the people in this room would want this phrase to mean, they are just not inputs for me when trying to arrive at an understanding of what this phrase means. So what I want to do is expound the phrase as clearly as I can 
and to tell you why I draw the conclusions that I draw about this phrase, the wife being the weaker vessel. Okay, first of all, what this does not mean. It does not mean that women are weaker spiritually than men generally. Uh, That is nowhere taught in the Bible, and there's nothing in the text itself that would indicate that's what this phrase means. It does not mean women are weaker intellectually or emotionally. That is nowhere taught in the Bible, and there's nothing in the text itself that would indicate that's what this phrase means. It does not mean women are inferior in terms of worth or value. That is nowhere taught in the Bible, and there's nothing in the text itself that would indicate that's what this phrase means. In fact, in a minute, we'll talk about something in the text that directly contradicts that idea. So if not spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, or in terms of worth and value, in what way is a woman understood to be the weaker vessel? I think we're helped by Peter's use of the word vessel. I think that's the key for us understanding what Peter means. He doesn't say she's the weaker person. He doesn't say she's the weaker soul. He doesn't say she has the weaker character or fortitude. He says she's the weaker vessel. Now, what does that word vessel mean? The word is used 23 times in the New Testament. If you looked up all the references to that word, as I have this week, you would quickly discern there are basically three meanings of that word, three ways in which that word vessel is used in the New Testament. First of all, a vessel is simply a container of some kind or a jar that contains something, or an object or instrument used for something. This usage is impersonal and refers to something inanimate. This is by far the most common usage. About 75% of the New Testament usages of this word are simply referring to like a jar or a container or some kind of inanimate object. So think in John 19 when Jesus is on the cross, uh, they find a jar of sour wine and they dip the the sponge in it and put it to Jesus' lips. That jar of sour wine is a vessel of sour wine. That's the most common way the word is used. All right, the second meaning you would see in the New Testament references, the second most common meaning, is to refer to the human body. To refer to the human body, flesh and bone, the human body. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 4 is a good example. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That word body is that word vessel. That each one of us would know how to control our own vessels, our own bodies. In that passage, he's clearly referring to the physical body, and that we not allow our physical bodies to engage in sexual immorality. So that's the second most common usage. A third of meaning of this word vessel, which is the least common, it's used once, maybe twice in the New Testament, is to refer to a person set aside for a particular purpose. Someone being a vessel, a person set aside for a particular purpose. So Acts 9, verse 15, the Lord speaking to Ananias says, but the Lord said to him, go to Paul, Saul, for he is a chosen instrument A chosen vessel is the word. He's a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Not the physical body there exactly. He's not saying Paul's a body of mine. He's saying he's a a person that's going to be set aside for a particular purpose. Okay, which one do we have in our passage? 1 Peter 3, 7, in reference to the wife as the weaker vessel. I believe it is almost certainly the second 
that is referring to the human body. The wife is weaker physically than the man. This interpretation has an ancient pedigree, that is, this is how many of the early church commentators understood the phrase. It's also the view held by literally all of the 10 to 12 or so commentators I consulted this week. Uh, This is the view of John Piper, Tom Schreiner, Peter Davids, Edwin Bloom, an excellent female commentator named Karen Jobes. It's the interpretation of Abigail Dodds in her fine little book, A Typical Woman. All of these and many others conclude, as I do, that when Peter refers to women as the weaker vessel, he is referring to the weakness of their bodies relative to men. Of the two sexes, of the two vessels, they are generally weaker physically. Uh, I don't know when this became a controversial statement or a controversial idea. Nature bears this out. The Bible makes this clear. There's a lot of talk nowadays about transgender athletes and things like that. Uh, I'm aware that right now many, I get the language mixed up, but transgender girls are shattering the record of cisgender girls in all kinds of sports because men and women are different physically. I have yet to hear of a single transgendered boy shattering the record of cisgendered boys. Uh, If the culture has somehow made you think it's controversial to suggest that women in general are physically weaker than men, I just want to kind of fortify you. Uh, If you believe that men typically, biologically, those possessing XY chromosomes are stronger physically, that is not at all the controversial statement. That has been universally believed by every person who ever lived before about yesterday. And it's taught in the Bible, it's borne out in nature. And this is Peter's basic point. Generally speaking, he's not thinking of man who has cerebral palsy and his wife is stronger physically. He's saying generally, painting with a broad brushstroke, the woman has the weaker body. She's the weaker vessel of the two. But let me ask, does that exhaust the meaning of the idea here in 1 Peter 3, 7, when Peter refers to the woman as the weaker vessel? And I would say, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean less than that, but I think it means a little more than that. There's a coordinating idea that we should appreciate, and that is this. The woman is weaker physically, but secondly, because women are weaker physically, and because they are in a subordinate role in the marriage, this implies certain vulnerabilities women have in the marriage relationship that are not present for the husband. Because women are the weaker vessel of the two, the wife is more vulnerable in the marriage than the man. She doesn't have the same physical strength that he does, and she doesn't have the same function he does. He has the position of headship and authority in the marriage. She's in a position more vulnerable than the man's position, and I think this is at least assumed, if not implied, in Peter's language. Husband, she is weaker than you physically and in terms of authority in the marriage relationship. Therefore, exercise your strength and your authority in a way that doesn't abuse her, but in a way that honors her. So to summarize, here's what I would say in terms of how to understand what it means that the woman is the weaker vessel. Two main ideas. The first is very clear. She is weaker physically of the two, and that's just not a refutable point. It's clearly entailed by the language. But secondly, she is weaker in the sense that she is more vulnerable in the marriage 
precisely because her husband is stronger than her and because the husband is in a position of headship over her. That's my understanding of the idea here. Now, in light of that understanding of weaker vessel, what does it mean in terms of how the husband is to treat his wife? Peter says he is to honor her. He's to honor her. That she is the weaker vessel, husbands, should move you to honor her. What does the disparity in relative strength generate in the heart of the Christian husband? There's a difference. There's a disparity. I'm stronger physically than she is. I'm in the place of headship given to me by Christ in the marriage. What should that generate in me toward my wife? It should generate honor, preference, esteem, a sort of nourishing and cherishing of the wife. Brothers, you're not to take advantage of her weakness to abuse her. You're not to try to play off her vulnerabilities and weaknesses. You're not to manipulate her or intimidate her. You are not to mock her or belittle her or make her feel less than. As I said a moment ago, you're not to act as though she should be just like you and react to things and deal with things in precisely the way that you do. None of these things are acceptable responses to the reality that your wife is the weaker vessel. Rather, the acknowledgement of this fact should generate a different kind of reaction in the hearts of Christian husbands. It should precipitate kindness, gentleness, deference, care, and an esteeming of her needs higher than your own. Brothers, I urge you to embrace your wife's weaknesses and vulnerabilities and treat her accordingly. Honor her and uphold her and esteem her highly as something precious, someone to treasure, someone to protect and to cherish. One more note here before leaving this point. Some people act as though the Bible in no place censures domestic violence or abuse. We talked about this last week. First of all, there are hundreds of texts that censure domestic violence and abuse. And secondly, this is implied in this verse. This passage strictly prohibits the violence of a husband toward his wife. Someone says, where does the Bible teach that a man can't hit a woman, that he can't slap her on the cheek or something like that, or physically intimidate her? It says it right here in this verse. You want to be a godly man? You want to be the kind of man God approves of? You want to be the kind of man the apostles like Peter could look in the eye? Brother, you honor your wife. You treat her with special care. You don't take advantage of the fact that your wife is weaker than you. Rather, you honor her for her weakness. To lay hands on a wife to harm her would be an exact violation of this passage. The exact opposite of the kind of honor that she is due as the weaker vessel. She is never to be harmed but to be honored. What is required of Christian husbands in this passage? First of all, that they live with their wives according to knowledge. Secondly, that they show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. Thirdly, and more briefly now, that they recognize their wives are co-heirs with them. That they recognize that their wives are co-heirs with them. If you would look at verse 7 again. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way or according to knowledge, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since, or because, for this reason, 
They are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're co-heirs with you, brother, husband. The way we treat our wives is shaped not only by the ways in which men and women are different, but also by the ways in which they are the same. Peter first identifies a difference between men and women, namely that the woman is the weaker vessel, and this requires that men give special honor to women. But then he identifies a further reason saying that men should honor their wives because their wives are like them in a certain way. They are co-heirs with them of the grace of life. The grace of life, I think, is referring to eschatological life. That is life that will be ours in the coming age when Jesus comes back and when he appears. Peter's saying, men, recognize your sisters, your wives, are going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth with you. They're going to inherit eternal life along with you. There is, 1 Peter 1, 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and she is a co-heir with you in that inheritance. Women in those days very rarely would be heirs or heiresses property, money, etc., was passed on to males, but Peter says it's not that way in God's economy. It's not that way with eternal life. God has sons and daughters, and they are both heirs of heaven. They are both heirs of the gift of life. And essentially, Peter is saying, honor your wives, men, because they are equal with you in terms of dignity and worth before God, and you're both getting the same inheritance. The sons have no spiritual advantage over the daughters. The inheritance belongs to both of them. This represents, I think, another way in which Christianity radically elevated women in a culture and climate in which women would have been viewed as second class. God says His daughters, the wives along with the husbands, His daughters are co-heirs with their brothers, with their husbands of the gift of life. And this amounts to another reason why husbands should honor their wives, because they too are partakers in the gift of life. Before leaving this point, let me just give a brief application here. I think Peter is saying, brothers, that your wife is a co-heir with you of the gift of life, the coming inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. That is, she's living for the world to come, just like you. She's got her eye on heaven and on eternal reward. She's living for that inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. She is storing up treasure in heaven just like you. She's seeking to live for God's kingdom just like you. So, brothers, I just want to encourage you to think about this. You can judge if this is a legitimate application of this idea. Perhaps one of the implications of being a co-heir with your wife is that you make sacrifices to serve her spiritual life and her usefulness in the kingdom of God. Husbands, don't assume your interest and your gifts and your endeavors should always trump your wife's. God has made your wife and he has gifted your wife and he has called your wife and you should want her to flourish in all her giftedness under the blessing of God. I can remember hearing a husband talk about this once. He was acknowledging that his wife had some unusual gifts, that the Lord had just endowed her with some special blessings, some special gifts and graces. And he just said, he said, I've made it one of my goals. It may come at a cost to my schedule at times. It may come at a cost to my interests and my preferences. But 
I have deliberately tried to arrange our life such that she is at times freed up to engage in those very passions, those very gifts and graces that God has given to her. This husband wanted his wife to flourish and to prosper under the blessing of God, and he was willing that it come at the cost of his own time, maybe some of his giftedness. Husbands and wives, you're co-heirs of the gift of life. You both have your eyes on heaven. You're both moving heavenward. You're seeking to live for God's kingdom. It would be so healthy and appropriate if the two of you together were to assess the strengths and gifts and callings that God has given to you as husbands and wives and to strategize and plan together. How can I, how can I work to maximize my wife's fruitfulness in the kingdom of God? And wives, you should do the same thing. How can I labor? What sacrifices can I make to sacrifice, uh, excuse me, to maximize the fruitfulness of my husband's work in God's kingdom? Your co-heirs together. Get a sense of the privilege of that and the calling of that and what you're living for together. And get excited about this idea of seeking to maximize the service potential in the kingdom of God of both the husband and the wife. And since this is a message particularly to husbands who are to know and understand your wife is a co-heir with you, I just want to encourage some of our men and some of our husbands to think about this. What gifts has God given to my wife? And how, in an appropriate and God-honoring way, can I create space for her to flourish and to prosper in those gifts? What is required of Christian husbands in this passage? Number one, that they live with their wives according to knowledge. Number two, that they show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. Number three, that they recognize their wives are co-heirs with them. Now, fourthly, and finally, and most briefly, that they do all of this so that their prayers wouldn't be hindered. That they do all of this, dwelling with their wives according to knowledge, honoring them as the weaker vessel, honoring them as co-heirs, Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered or impeded. In one sense, I want to say this means exactly what it says. Husbands who ignore the requirements of this verse to know their wives, to honor their wives, to esteem their wives as co-heirs, will find that their prayers are hindered, that their prayers will not be effective. On the other hand, exactly what that means, what Peter has in mind, I don't exactly know. It could mean, husbands, that God won't answer your prayers. It, it could be that because you're coming to God with an unclean conscience, because you've not been honoring your wife as God calls you to, uh, that you will not be able to pray as you ought. It could mean that husbands and wives won't be able to pray together as they should if they're not living in this kind of communion and love toward one another. Whatever the meaning, this is the idea, brothers. Your prayer life is suffering because of this, and the effectiveness of your prayers will be diminished if you don't honor your wife. This may be the material point, brothers, and I want you to think about this. God will not allow, He will not bless with His favor, He will not honor men who will not honor their wives. You might have all the outward signs of achievement. You might be celebrated at your job. You might have the world's applause. But what is that if you don't have the approval of God? Who cares if you are well-liked, brother, and admired and promoted and applauded out there in the world, but you're a hypocrite at home? 
You want to be able to go to God with an open face and a clean conscience. Be able to say, by the grace of Christ, I have sought to honor your daughter, this co-heir, this wife that you have given to me. You want to go into the presence of God with no reason to be ashamed. You don't want to go into God's presence in prayer as a hypocrite. And I think we should appreciate this. We should understand this, brothers. I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone else here. God will not honor us if we don't honor our wives. God will not favor us. Again, we might have plaudits from the world. We might have outward success. But if we don't honor our wives, if we're not faithful in this area, if we're hypocrites in this area, all of that is nothing. We ought to live for the approval of God. And I do think this is the point. God will honor those husbands who seek to honor their wives. In closing, brothers and sisters, let me say three things very quickly. Number one, these last two sermons have been uh, the last week directed to wives, this week directed to husbands. It could be, it doesn't have to be this way, I don't assume it's this way, but it could be that there are some wives here who were in some ways convicted by last week's message. And it could be that there are some husbands here today who are convicted by this week's message. Let me encourage you, in light of these two sermons, to get some time alone with your spouse. If you can go on a date, great. If you can just get a few minutes together. But talk about these messages together. And don't be afraid if you realize I've not been the wife that I ought to be. I, I don't pass muster before this passage. Or if you're saying as a husband, look, I've just not been the man I need to be. The Christian life is a life of repentance. And the gospel frees us to acknowledge our failures. Go to one another and say, I, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I've not been the wife or the husband that I want to be. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be ashamed of that. Create the ethos and the culture in your marriage that very freely you can come to one another and acknowledge failure, and then you can talk together and pray together about how to do better to the glory of Christ. I want to be a better wife, honey. I, I just, I want God's approval. I want to live as God has called me to. I want to treasure the imperishable beauty of the hidden person of the heart. And I, I haven't been doing that and living in that way like I want to. Husbands look into their wives saying, I, I was cognizant under the preaching of the word. I've just not honored you as I ought. In our marriages, that should be the easiest thing in the world to say. The grace of Christ in the gospel frees us to acknowledge our sin and our failure, not only to Christ, but to one another. And so I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, create a culture in your marriage, a climate in your marriage where it's easy to acknowledge failure, it's easy to repent, and where forgiveness flows freely, and you can work together to better please Christ in your marriages. A second comment. In our church, Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem, let's make this a topic of conversation with one another. We are all in this sinful mess together. We all want to help one another to be presented on the last day, mature and whole in Christ. Let's help each other in our marriages. This is not off limits. You're at breakfast with another brother. It is totally allowable. I'm telling you, you can do this to say, how are things going in the marriage? Hey, how, how has your relationship with your wife been? Are there ways I can pray for you, ways that I can encourage you? Again, in the church family, that should be the most natural thing in the world. As those who love one another, who are called of God to stir one another up, to love in good works, to exhort one another daily, Marriage is one of the most important things in our lives. Those of us who are married, we should help one another in our marriages. We should seek help in our marriages. 
Brothers should be encouraging one another in these things. I want to help my brother be effective at honoring and loving his wife. And I want him to help me to love and honor my wife. And sisters in this church should be praying together about how they could better honor God as wives in their marriages and how they could live for God's approval and how they could better honor and respect their husbands. Let's just commit to do this in our church, that we're going to help each other to grow in our marriages. Finally, and in closing, to every wife here with an imperfect husband, and that would be every wife here. Let me point you to the true and better husband in Jesus Christ. You have in him a husband who is in every way perfect, and your husband, even at his best, is a pointer to that greater husband. At his best, Ephesians 5 tells us, he is modeling something of the true and better husband, Jesus Christ. And I want to say this to wives whose husbands are in multiple ways inadequate. Maybe your husband is like those husbands in 1 Peter 3. He's not obeying the word. He's not a Christian, or he's just a very disappointing Christian. You have a husband who is in every way perfect, who will love you, who will care for you, and who will never disappoint you. And it would just be a total loss if in speaking to wives like I did last week, I not point you to the true and better husband. To every husband here, let me say this. At your best, you're just a pointer to the true and better husband, Jesus Christ. And brothers, he will help you. He is your model. He will show you how to love your wife, how to honor your bride, how to seek to sacrifice for her and to live for her. Go to Jesus and find in him the model and the example. And then appreciate also the Bible says he is your husband. Whatever disappointments you know in this life, he is the husband of his bride, the church. He will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. He will love you perfectly, and he'll show you how to love your wife. Let's pray together. Father, please write your law on our hearts and inscribe your will on our souls. Help us to be lovers of the paths of righteousness. You have shown us in your word last week in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, the path for wives to find God's approval, path that is good and right and honorable, that is precious in the sight of God. Help us to love it and to pursue it, those of us here who are wives and women. And you have shown us this morning in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, the path of righteousness that you call husbands to. Please help the husbands in this room to live out the very beautiful vision that you have laid out for us in this text, that they would honor their wives, that they would esteem them highly as the weaker vessel, that they would live with their wives as co-heirs, that no man here would have cause for his prayers to be hindered. Please help us to love your word and to love your truth and to live out what you have called us to in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.